If you want to be at the tip of the spear of sports performance, the answer is simple. Simply Faster is your insider's edge to maximize results with the highest quality premier sports equipment in the business. Visit Simply Faster and level up. Welcome everyone to the Companions of the Compendium podcast. Today I have a special guest from down under, uh, my brother from another mother, a coach who I look to to be a mentor and a confidant and a peer that I go to when I have problems on everything to do with interpersonal relationships, friendship, training. He's a frequent contributor to a number of different um, clinics and online schools such as Tyrone Edge's uh, Worldwide Speed Summits and Derek Hansen's Zoom Pop Conversations. Uh, Mike is, this is Mike Hurst. He's the Australian 400 meter guru and has had numerous athletes at both the youth level and international level and even Australian record holders. It's my great pleasure to introduce all of you to Coach Mike Hurst. Mike, how you doing today, buddy? I'm doing well. I'm still uh, upright and taking nourishment. <laughs> well, that's, so that's good. a good start. <laughs> that's a good start with everything that's been going on. Well, I'm so glad that you've been able to take some time with me. And I know it's weird because I'm talking to you in tomorrow. <laughs> and it's it's uh, summertime down there and it's wintertime up here. We got a couple inches of snow. So eventually I'll be able to wake my way across the ocean and visit you and can't wait to hang out with you uh, in person. But this is probably the next best thing. And I appreciate you giving me so much time. So to get started, here, I want to talk to you about kind of your evolution as a coach, your story and those influences on your coaching career, whether it was individuals or circumstances that kind of gave you a few aha moments. Um, as a coach, I was, uh, I started coaching when I was in high school at Sydney, Sydney boys high. And I was really frustrated that uh, all the attention was given to rugby and cricket. And here was I loving track and field. And we always had the school carnival and kids who I thought probably should do better at the inter-school meets were failing. So I said, okay, when I got into my last year in high school, I said, I'll, I'll take anybody on who wants to be coached and we'll work on the horizontal jumps and the sprints but not the 400. And, uh, <laughs> and I got a couple of kids who actually won some major schoolboy titles. I thought, hmm, I can do this. And then in the years shortly after that, I, I was asked to do some coaching at Waverley College, which was a powerhouse in Sydney. And the coach there, the head coach, Gary, he said, you know, you, you produced head per head the best results of any coach in the system here at our school. So I think we had six long jumpers and we got three firsts and three minor placings in the, in the big annual uh, combined associated schools carnival. Thought, okay, yeah, that, that I can do that. And then I was working as a sports writer doing basically every every sport as you do as a young young cat and one day I went out to see a girl called Debbie Wells who had I think lost her way that would, would have been about 1979 early and I said what are you doing she just said I'm, I'm just training myself I said but, yeah, but you've, you've got your own coach he was a 
a Munich Olympic Australian team coach. He said, yeah, she said, yeah, but he just ignores me. So I'm just doing my own thing. And I've gone, oh, gee whiz, that's a shame. Because I'd known Debbie for four years before that. She was a freakish talent, but she definitely had lost her way and had put on some weight. She was a big girl. She was about 5'10", 6 foot. And she she started to, she had whacked it on. She had a, a predisposition to consume every chocolate bar <laughs> in sight. <laughs> so <laughs> I loved her. And I just said, look, if, if, if it's just a second pair of eyes, I can do that. I can help you maybe. And then you can just say, listen, you're an idiot. You don't know what you're talking about. Go away. And I would go away because I had plenty of other things in my life at that stage. But she said, no, I'd like that. And so we started working together. I threw some ideas at her. I had a, I had a, a priority based around mechanics and plyometrics because my background was in the jumps. And that's my only formal coaching qualifications were in the jumps, which I did at a, uh, a program that was run by the Australian Track and Field Coaches Association. And I met some great coaches at that place and was inspired by my fellow coaches to take it a bit more seriously and whatever. But but I was a nerd for coaching anyway. And uh, I used to read track technique as a recreation. Anything I could find on any kind of systematic way of coaching, you know, as a young guy, I'm looking for the formula. I'm looking for the truth. Uh, this is the way. <laughs> and uh, this is the only way, you know. I got Debbie onto the... Moscow Olympic team in 1980 for the, I don't know what it was for, probably the 104 by one, or maybe it was only the four by one. But I figure if you're, if you're on the Olympic team, you're on your way. You know, it's a good result. And she had to run qualifying time. She had to break the state record to get there. And she did for the hundred. And so that's kind of where it started. I put Debbie back onto, we had some problems. And then four years later, we reunified two years before the LA Olympics and she got on the team for that one as well, again for the 100 and four by one, but nothing much came of it because she, she got injured prior to the Games opening ceremony on both occasions, which must have been horribly frustrating for the poor girl. On the way, when we were preparing to go to LA, I was approached by a guy called Rick Chapman who was going out with uh, Marie Holland and they did eventually get married. And he said, you know, I'd like to, um, I'd like you to coach Marie for the 400. And I said, yeah, but I don't know anything about the 400 and I don't even really like the event. And um, <laughs> he said, yeah, but you could learn. And I've gone, Oh yeah, that's true. I'd known Marie since she was about nine years old. I went to the state primary schools championships and I, I saw this kid going around. I thought, gee, you know, you've got some talent. And I said to her then, this is nine or 10 or something. I said, look, Marie, you won't remember this, but if you ever have a problem and you, and if you ever need some support or coaching advice, give me a call. You know, you know where to find me. I'll, I'm working at the newspaper, so it's not hard to find me. I'm not hiding. And uh, so I just thought, okay, I made that promise all those years ago. Let's, let's see what we can do. So I worked, I, I made it my business to search out 
400 meter type people on the way to LA. And I spoke at length to Rick Mitchell, who was uh, a great Australian athlete and uh, a great a great intellect on on particularly on matters track and field and and management. And he talked to me about how he won the silver medal with a sub 45 at the Moscow Olympic Games uh, in the 400. And I picked up some of those ideas and followed those that kind of long to short program progression. Marie did very well under that system. She got to 51.51. She won the Australian title, the British women's title. She actually qualified in 1985 to compete on points. She qualified in the inaugural Grand Prix final, the Mobile Grand Prix final, which was to be held in Rome. But for some reason, her then husband decided that she had to come home and she wasn't allowed to stay another day. So she jumped on a plane, missed the opportunity of a lifetime to get her head in a better place uh, by competing against all these big, big stars in the women's 400. And uh, her place was taken by a girl who she would meet up with later in the same year, a young lady called Marita Koch, who, um, <laughs> who went on to break the world record and, and still stands at 47.60. And I think it'll be a while before it's ever broken, but who knows? So from there, the next year in, in 86, 1986, we went to the Commonwealth Games. Things were going well. Andy Norman, who was the, the big daddy of, uh, of European and certainly British track and field, he said, look, we're putting a meet on at Gateshead with a women's 300. Would you like Marie to run in that? I've gone, well, who's, who's in it? This was about a month before the Commonwealth Games, the second Commonwealth Games in Edinburgh in 1986. And he said, Chandra Cheeseborough, who was the listed world record holder for the women's three, 300 metres, and Cathy Smallwood, Cathy Cook, who was the individual 400 metre bronze medalist from the Olympics in LA two years earlier. I said, yeah, that'd be great thinking well Marie see how and I said yeah Marie see how close you can get to them don't roll over and die just compete stay right. alert cover any moves where you go and I'm thinking she can get within five or six meters of these ladies that'd be an awesome achievement she won the race Marie <laughs> which was like a shock to me I thought well here we go we're on our way we're going to win win more than we lose and the Commonwealth Games is looking really good because we still have hardly touched the speed thread of where we're going. Anyway, two or three days later, she can't walk. She's got, she's really in pain. She cannot do anything. She can't walk upstairs, can't go for a walk, certainly can't jog or run. Turned out that she had a failure of adaptation. She had severe tendonitis at the upper and lower insertions of the hamstring muscles of both legs. And that came about because she'd gone from running in a low, comfortable position to elevating and extending vertically to overhaul those two uh, terrific champions of, of the women's 400-metre uh, sprint at Gateshead. I don't know what the, the, the medical uh, intervention these days would have been, but in those days, back in 86, the only prescription really was complete rest and, and very light massage, I guess. 
and she was in the hands of the medics on the national Australian national team over in Edinburgh. And she finally came good about two, two and a half weeks later, and she was allowed to do anything. And that was about 10 days before the actual first round of the Commonwealth Games. Well, what can you do in 10 days that isn't going to flatten you even more? You, all you can do is basically hunt for rhythm. So she did that. We did that. She got a nose in front in the actual 400 final. She made the final. So with that, I thought that was really awesome, given the problem. She got, in, she got a nose in front with about 50 metres to go. And I thought, oh, here we go. This is great. This is, uh, this is the big finish. And then all of a sudden that died after about two or three steps. And she got buried in the charge of the light brigade. She finished fifth overall. And I still thought, well, all right. You know, it's still a damn good result. Uh, just getting to the final and that showed us a glimpse of your potential because the girl who won it was Debbie Flintoff King who two years later would win the 400 meter hurdles Olympic gold medal and in that race in Edinburgh she ran was it 50.75 or something like that and that was an Australian open record and she won the gold medal and she would have won the 400 hurdles as well I'm sure I can't remember but I'm pretty sure she did after that Marie came up to see me in the grandstand. She bounded up the stairs. She was really very happy with with uh, the overall result, given all the extenuating circumstances. And we rang her folks up. All I could see was Marie crying, going, yep, yep, okay, bye then. And she's hung up. And I'm going, what the hell happened? And I won't say what was said to her, but she was devastated by the response of her dad. And I thought, well, that's not your fault, Marie. It's on me. I'm the guy who designed the program. I'm the guy who helped you implement it. Everything is on my head and I've let you down. I failed you. And that was a, a, an enormous, enormous um, eye-opener. In, in terms of the responsibility of the coach to the athlete, accept some blame, coaches. You know, you're, you're part of the process. You're part of the problem. Yes, you're already part of the celebration, but you've also got to be part of, you've got to carry the can for failures as well. That's what I think a good coach would do, and a good parent as well. It's not about the kid letting you down. It's not about the athlete letting you down. No one feels as bad as the athlete themselves, but I felt real bad about it. Uh, Marie left and went to train with somebody else after that experience, trained with a couple of other people after that experience, in the meanwhile, I had basically pondered the problem and realised it was an adaptation issue and it was a mechanics adaptation issue, had to be. So I said, I need to put more quality into my program and it needs to be more race specific. But how, how race specific? And I thought, well, maybe at least as specific as the slowest 100 metre segment of the race you want to run. And in... I thought, well, if you want to reach an Olympic final, you probably need to run 50 flat if you're a lady and probably 44 flat if you're a man. So that was easy enough to sort of design the program around that. So in Marie's case, it would mean, for example, or let's say Darren Clark's case, because he, he joined me in very early 88 after having finished last in his semi-final at the Rome World Championships in 1987, he came over because I was already 
had uh, rekindled the relation, the coaching relationship with Marie. And I think he liked Marie and respected her. The two of them looked at my program and said, well, I said to them, look, it's, it's a theoretical program. It, no, no one's ever done it. Well, not to my knowledge. I was reasonably aware of what everybody, all the other major coaches in the country, in the world were doing with their program structure. I hadn't seen anybody that was doing what I was doing, what I wanted to do. I said, you know, if you're welcome to come on board, I, I, I would love you to, because if anyone could make sense of this program, it would be two high-performance athletes. Long story short, they both signed on. Both of them had massive problems leading into Seoul Olympics in 88. Both of them overcame their problems. Both of them reached the Olympic finals. Both of them set national records in their semis. Marie finally improved her PB of 51.51 down to 50.24. And Darren improved his PB from, I think it was 44.72 down to 44.38. And um, he backed up in the final with a 44.55. And, you know, he would, he would go on to run 44.60 at the Commonwealth Games in Auckland. 18 months after that Olympic final. So the two of them got good results. I called the program my uh, concurrent theory. Uh, but after they both did well, I, I thought, well, I guess it's still a theory, but I would say that empirically, they've proven that it works by their results. And I digressed before, but to, to, to sort of look at the structure of it, we're looking at what's your, your minimum your minimum speed probably for the last 100 for Darren Clark would have been somewhere in the 11-second range and for Marie Holland, somewhere in the 13-second range for the last 100 of your dream 400-metre performance. And so that meant a 23-second 200-metre rhythm for Darren to come home with 26 second rhythm for Marie Holland. Well, Marie could run high 23s, low 24s in a sleep. And Darren had a PB of 20.47 or something like that, electric, 4.9 maybe. That, that was, those times were not hard to achieve even in the depths of winter and it doesn't snow where we live in Sydney. I thought, well, you can get those times and we can set up uh, a pattern of work based around those minimum expectations. And then the rest of it, we need to continue to work on improving your short speed and your intermediate speed. So 100, 200, 300. And if we can develop that thread, that means that you will be running in the rhythm of the race you wish to compete in or that standard that you wish to be at. And we shouldn't have any adaptation issues in future. The other thing about it, was a modular program, sort of like a series of, if you like, little arrowheads, one on top of the other, on top of that, on top of that. So I read some material from Frank Dick, who was the, the great motivator, one of the great minds of British track and field in the golden era, the last golden era, the most recent golden era of British track and field. Uh, and he, you know, he was working with uh, Daly Thompson and, uh, that that era was was marked by um, Sebastian Coe, Steve Ovet, Steve Cram, Peter Elliott, and a lot of other really great people. Um, Jonathan Edwards in the triple jump, 
still the world record holder as we speak, but for how much longer? Not much. It doesn't seem like it. It's, it's getting closer. Yeah, there's a, it's coming. They're coming <laughs> for it. <laughs> and I tell you what, no one would be happier to see it go than him these days. It's it's, it's getting old and mouldy that record. <clears throat> but I digress again. Where where were we? Uh, so, yeah. So so we we modelled it on a series of arrowheads. Frank Dick had written something along the lines of it takes about three weeks of doing something in the same rhythm before you get locked into a dynamic stereotype, which was news to me. And I thought, you know what? I think that's what Marie was stuck in back in uh, 86. So I thought, well, we don't want to go there again. We do not wish to revisit that scenario because that was a small tragedy for her, a real eye-opener for me. I said, well, we'll go two weeks or two and a half weeks of one particular kind of work, and then we'll change the rhythm change the focus of the work for the next two and a half weeks. In that process, I end up with a five-week uh, cycle of work. The first two and a half weeks could be loosely described as based around uh, strength and endurance. The next two and a half weeks could be based around power and speed. And I thought, as was traditional then, and, and I think necessary, if you cannot recover from the work, you cannot move forwards. You cannot progress. So I programmed a week of rest and test. And I wasn't too concerned if there was no testing. You know, sometimes these guys were so smashed up that they really would be lucky to fit one one trial in. So, but that, that's the way I wrote it. And we would repeat that cycle a few times. And, and I just called it general prep, general preparation period or general preparation phase or program. And it seemed to work pretty well. And no one had adaptation problems. And that's where we got those nice results at the Seoul Olympics. And I had never thought in my wildest dreams that I would ever coach someone into an Olympic final. I was also, because I was still writing sports, and I was actually working as the athletics writer in the main stadium for the News Limited group in Australia at the Seoul Olympics. And I'd done the same in LA four years earlier. I was also aware of a doping problem in all sport. I realised that it might not ever be possible to win an Olympic medal clean, which is a, a terrible battle of confronting reality. And I decided then that if I could coach somebody into, into an Olympic final, that's as good as winning an Olympic medal for a clean athlete and a clean coach. It's terrible indictment of the sport that it's come to that, but that's the only way I could continue coaching. Otherwise, I would have had to have in all conscience, walked away from it and left it to other people. And I think there's a lot, a lot of love goes into coaching and a lot of love goes into racing. It reveals a lot of character in the coach and the athlete. Along all the things like perseverance and striving for excellence and learning from your mistakes, owning up to your mistakes, being willing to make a change. Don't be pig-headed. Understand reality. Change for the better. I think all those things are incumbent in business and in education and you're a teacher, a great school teacher, you would understand all of those assets will come from the way you go about delivering lessons in the class and beyond the class. And that's why you're on the track as well. We have so much in common, in my opinion, but probably we don't think about it like that all that often. All these years later, I'm still happy to be coaching. And at the most recent 
World Athletics Championships in Doha in 2019, I managed to get two of my athletes on the national team, Ian Halpin, who, um, who anchored the men's 4x4 relay team for Australia, and Rebecca Bennett, Beck Bennett, who anchored the women's 4x4 for Australia at these Doha championships. And I must say, even though neither team automatically qualified for the Tokyo Olympics in those, fine, in those, in those meets, of that, well, it was one of the more prouder moments of my coaching career that um, how many years after Moscow? Well, that's what I was going to say, right? In many ways, your system has stood the test of time which would make me very proud if I was a coach and I'm, and I know you are. Yeah. Cause you're looking at 88 and then 2019, right? So that's yeah. 31 years, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's incredible. Kind of jumping off on that a little bit. I, I want to ask you, has there been anything in your program from then to now that you've either really drilled down and, and understand even better, or is there something that you feel like you've added in that you feel has real value in 2021? I feel that the use of video has, has really helped. I have no video, no still photos of that entire period where I worked with Darren Clark and Marie Holland. And it's not just because it's nice to look back and have nice memories. There were things that they could do that people today could learn from. They were the masters of my program and the way I would like to see it implemented. And so we're still kind of reinventing the damn wheel all those years later. I don't think I've changed that much. I think I'm more aware from people telling me that my program emphasizes acceleration frequently which seems to be a big thing now if you subscribe to the altus understanding of sprint progressive uh, sprint methodology programming whatever we did tons of that sort of stuff but we didn't think of it as acceleration i don't know and and the terminology is is a lot different dan path has expanded my lexicon of terms and my understanding of what it is that i was doing uh, everything i did back in the day was pretty much intuitive and based on my reading, and you know, you, there was no interclub, uh, interclub, internet back in the day. I suppose I also understood, well, I certainly understand that there is more than one way to, to climb up the mountain. Everybody who's a coach in the 400 has their own system, and that's great. Cross-fertilisation of ideas can only help evolve the sport. And you'd like to think that the people that you're competing against as a coach and as as an athlete, are clean and you have to give them the respect that deserves because everyone's had to cross their own uh, bridges. Everyone's had to really struggle. The thing that I, I like about the coaching is that people will come to you who've got no background in, in the event possibly and you try to help them because you like working with them and you work for them as well as with them. And as they get a lot more mature, and understand the sport and understand their own their own uh, body and their own performance capabilities, that your relationship evolves from a master to student into a, uh, a partnership 
And that's how friendships evolve. So for instance, when Beck Bennett came to me four years ago, she had no background in the sport. She couldn't make the school 400 metre team. <laughs> um, She's come a long way. That's she for has sure. come a little ways, yeah. So she couldn't make the school team and within a couple of years or so, she was on the podium at the national championships in her age groups, yeah? So she's 21 now and she came to me when she was like 17. Yeah, we've had many setbacks, many problems. She's She's got a million options in her life and uh, she doesn't need athletics. She doesn't need anything. And she's studying uh, physiotherapy at the, at the top university in Australia, Sydney University. She's very, very bright, very challenging to coach. And she's got a huge circle of friends who are always saying, let's go overseas. You can't do that. Oh, yes, she can. So off she'd go for, you know, a couple of months in the middle of the season. And you'd say, all right, I'm patient. I can wait. And um, Ian, ditto, four years back, was not in the sport, not even in the sport. He had spent the previous six years learning to become a chef, very good at all of that. And he knocked on my door, purely coincidental, said, oh, would you be willing to coach me? And I've gone, yeah, I know you. I remember seeing you at the state championships earlier this year and you had something special, but you blew up after about 250 metres. You staggered home. He said, oh, that's because I've got stress fractures in both shins and I've got an Achilles problem. I've got you, beauty. <laughs> what a challenge. So I took some videos of Ian and I sent them off to my dear friend and mentor. He's a mentor to hundreds of coaches, is Dan Paff or Faff. <laughs> and Dan looked at the videos, took them from front, behind, left side, right side. And his, his response was, good luck there. <laughs> <laughs> he said, you can coach, he later added, you can coach this guy for two years and not begin to make a difference. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. It's been a ride and a half with Ian. What a fantastic fellow he is. Look, he's just got some biomechanics issues. He kind of didn't think that they were significant and now he understands they are so he's been working on it and through him we've met some terrific practitioners medical paramedical it's it's benefited my coaching everybody everybody that comes after Ian will benefit from what I've learned coaching Ian and ditto what I've learned from coaching Beck so I think in many ways I'm a better coach now than I was in 88 but I did have two supreme athletes who purely coincidentally knocked on my door at the same time. It's, it's kind of interesting. The other thing that's kind of interesting is how reluctant or just how blind local state authorities are, it's certainly in New South Wales, to any of the, let's say, many, or maybe it's just me, maybe they just hate me. They don't see the program as being beneficial to a great number of people and they want no interference in their own projects, which are not successful. And I wish they were, and I wish them luck. But by and large, I think any program is as good as the coach that's leading it. So let me ask you a question on that, because the concurrent system does work. I believe in it as a 
oh gosh, how do I say this? The foundation of Coach Burris, who also was interviewed, you guys would be quick friends. I'll probably drag him along at some point with me too to visit Beautiful. you guys. You guys would talk till the cows came home. But anyway, it became kind of this foundational idea of, oh, this is what I'm kind of doing, but I've never had anybody clearly clean up all the ideas in the way that you have, Mike. And so my what I'm hearing from you and what I believe in your system is one, it works. And the reason why it works is because it's thoughtful to the energetics of the sport, the biomechanics of the sport, the strategy of the particular event, but also it respects like the work that has to be done in order to be able to compete where I think other people get off of these tangents where they want to do cute things that look fun or are interesting, but interesting isn't always effective. And so what, what do you think are the strengths of your system? What do you, what do you, when you, if you had to drill it down, looking at this, it's like your system is doing a good job. It is repeatable. And it has been shown to stand the test of time. So what is it about your system that you think is such a strength that maybe, like you said, some of these other folks aren't getting? I think there's an, a nice mix between general conditioning and specific event conditioning. There's an emphasis on training in the rhythm of the race. And if you're not in the rhythm of the race, what the hell are you conditioning then? I see people running repeat 600s, repeat 500s, and you look at the mechanics and it doesn't resemble anything that you would ever see anybody racing a 400 in. You, it doesn't resemble the mechanics of, a, of an athlete that could run an interclub race, never mind an Olympic final. The other thing that I've learned, you can't really reproduce the golden season. Every season's a new season. Every athlete has a new set of reality problems strengths and weaknesses and you have to work to the individual a lot more typically when i'm coaching i might have three or four different programs running on the same session and it, it, even though you like to partner up your athletes sometimes you just can't and sometimes some athletes will say well look i could use a little bit of that okay that'd be great if you could help run with her that'd be terrific I think the other thing is the demands of the sport when I had high-performance athletes and in the pre-COVID era, well, the demands is that you could receive an invitation at the drop of a hat to run for your country or to take advantage of an opportunity to race in another country and you damn well better be ready or you're going to miss that opportunity and it will go to the next person in the queue and that, that might be an opportunity to make some good dollars or just experience racing against the Olympic medalists or whatever, or to a country that you've never been to that you perhaps would love to go to, and you may not have an opportunity again. So the composite program is modular by design, and it was probably just a happy happy accident that it suited the needs of Darren and Marie back in 88, that they could just, with six weeks' notice, they could run and represent themselves and their country with distinction. So we were never that far off the rhythm of the race because that's how we trained. Everything was in the rhythm of the race. 
It didn't take long to put an arrowhead on a six-week block. You can just move the bits around and sharpen up, maybe get a bit more, a lot more recovery. You would do a pretty good performance. I think that that suited the, the needs of someone who would do the European circuit, who might spend a month or six weeks in Europe going from meet to meet to meet to meet and building their credibility and, and improving their own experience. From that point of view, I thought there was much to be learned. I am still waiting for some sports science genius, biomechanist or whatever, to come along and explain to me why the program works. I'm not that cerebral. I'm not a scientist. I'm not formally trained in biomechanics, not formally trained in physiology. My son is, but he's not that interested in track and field. <laughs> he's a basketball man. And um, so that's Jackson Hurst, and he's an exercise physiologist, a registered exercise physiologist. But he just loves, he loves his hoops. And it, he did, he has come out a few times to run with, with us and he enjoys it, but not so much that, yeah, it's, no. It can't compete with hoops. <laughs> good luck. Good luck to him. I don't. I don't know. I mean, I, we rely. I learned a lot through. I probably learned as much from Darren and Marie as I ever imparted to them in terms of knowledge of process and understanding that every athlete is unique. There are commonalities, obviously. I've tried to make my program or I consider myself more of a generalist, as I think you do too. Yeah, for sure. You embrace everything and then you start whittling things down as you progress and as you understand your athlete a bit more so that you don't overburden them with stuff that really isn't going to make that much of a contribution to them. And I think that's important. The other thing that I think is more important than I ever realised back in in the 80s and certainly in the 70s was the importance of recovery and regeneration. I think that's one of the things that if you see what's, what they're doing at Altus, I flew over there uh, in early 2019 with Ian and a young pup called Keegan Bell. We uh, went over there. We were hosted at, at Altus for, I think, just 12 days. But just seeing how important the uh, or the emphasis on the recovery process and procedures, that was um, very important to me. Since then, working with Dan and learning how he implements what he calls the intrinsics of stiffening the feet up to uh, brace at contact. And more recently, I've got much more involved in things like skipping, really light, simple plyometrics that you would see little kids doing, you know, when they play hopscotch or whatever. Uh, in, in kindergarten kids, they love to skip. Skipping is about as specific to sprinting as you can get without sprinting. It's like every step is a long jump, is a takeoff for a long jump or a triple jump. And so I incorporate a lot more of that into the program now. And I have my reasons for doing it. I like to try particularly uh, develop posterior chain activity, activation. So I'll I'll have them skip for 30 metres for height, segueing straight into 30 metres for length, skipping still, segueing straight into 30 metre sprint. And in all the time, they'll be carrying a med ball overhead. Here's a light med ball, just something to activate the, the dorsal muscles and glute and hamstrings and what have you. Seems to me that there's too much emphasis on 
front side strengthening in, in many sprint programs, and it may be perfect for a 100-metre race, but I no, don't think it's that great for a 400-metre race. The other thing that I try to get my athletes to do now that I'm back in charge of in charge of the lifting programs for most of my athletes, I don't like them dropping the bar. I like them to lower the bar sensibly because even though they think, why would I do that? Because when you do that, you're still developing the eccentric component right. of, of strength. It's not all about concentric component. It's also... As Charlie Francis, who was one of my great mentors, along with Kelvin Giles and now Dan Paff, you understand that, as, as Charlie said, the ability, I was just, just quickly, I was just going to say, the ability to, to tolerate the shock of landing determines everything that follows in the stride cycle. So when we do more formal plyometrics, I like to use uh, an old rickety old wooden grandstand not far from my home. And yes, we will bound and hop and do double foot takeoffs and single foot takeoffs <coughs> upwards. But we'll also hop single foot down as well and change the foot, change the leg. Again, that ability to hit the floor and come off it rapidly is what I'm looking for. I still don't like bounding on the horizontal. I know that's very, everybody seems to write how important it is. I find, find that we end up with back injuries because the people lose that pelvic position. They over-rotate, they over-emphasize certain aspects of uh, the front side mechanics. Yeah, I, you know, I was a state long jump rep and all my formal coaching at the AIS was in, in the jumps, uh, not in the sprints. But I still don't like bounding. I'm, I'm happier hopping up and down a more vertical component of, 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 the, uh, of the plyometrics. And skipping takes the place of bounding in my program. I like the skipping because it gets you up off the bloody floor. And that's what sprinters need to do. At some point, everybody has to go vertical. So, yeah, that's where we are. So what's interesting about that and just kind of formulating this in my mind as you're talking what I find intriguing is you are trying to, in my opinion, just hearing what you're describing, maintaining great posture with the medicine ball being in that position. And so even when we're going way vertical, we're trying to maintain upright posture. When we're doing our skips, we're still trying to, or jumps for distance, we're still trying to maintain that posture. And then of course, we're trying to maintain it again when you blend it into running. So you have something that doesn't look like sprinting per se, something that looks more like sprinting to sprinting. And then meanwhile, everybody's keeping their shoulders up, their hips tall, all that kind of stuff. And you post for the listeners, because this is really important too, if you want to look into what Mike's doing, you all should join his Facebook group, which is the Fast Track 400 meter group um, that he runs, where he posts pictures of his workouts and the kids in video actually competing in practice on a track, or on a grass surface, and then that rickety old uh, grandstand that he talks about. I've seen his athletes jumping up and down and doing all of that. And I think that's what's really neat is what you're describing. There is a difference between a 100-meter and a 200-meter sprinter in terms of that thigh amplitude. And the backside mechanics isn't going to change, but that thigh amplitude is different. And for a 400-meter runner, it's about creating this consistent bounce with good mechanics that can be maintained over the length of a 200, a 400, a, a four by four. 
And what I'm hearing you put together is kind of describing this routine that makes a lot of sense for an athlete that has a little bit difference in amplitude, creating this pulse, maintaining really good posture, which lends itself to the mechanical work that you've been talking about to build that in as well. I'm learning a lot, which is exciting. And that's a benefit of having these conversations because <laughs> I like the thought process of those ideas. Continue. Uh, the other thing that I think has become more apparent over the years is that you can't progress until you can recover. Uh, and and we, I did obviously pay respect to that a few minutes earlier when I talked about the, the processes that, that uh, are part of the daily or every second day routine at Altus. There's a, a rider to that one as well. I don't like my athletes to go for a big long jog and try to flush out the lactic if we are doing a big lactic session. Something about that process seems to not make sense to me. And it's probably because I, I'm too dumb to understand the, the physiological processes. But it seems to me that if, I'm gonna, if we're gonna spend a lot of effort and go through a lot of pain to generate that kind of lactic to evolve or to generate the lactic. It's a negative hydrogen ion or whatever it is that causes the pain. It's not the lactic, but I want that stuff to stay in the system and marinate the muscles. I would like, I don't see the point of spending say an hour or two hours generating that stuff and then flush it out after five seconds, five minutes, whatever. I want to keep it going as long as I can. I suspect there are gains to be made even during resting period. And that was the other thing, how you fit all the components together. So you've got your basic six-week cycle with two, two-and-a-half-week micro cycles within that block. And within each week, we have two days of, of rest. One of those days in years gone by would be occupied with just yoga or gymnastics, which was always a lot of fun. And just to help to sort of restore the muscle length, I think, for want of a better word, we go uh, with a rhythm of, uh, within the week, we go a rhythm of two days of training, one day of rest, three days of training, one day of rest. And within that, we will always do the high intensity work on the first day following a rest day, which makes sense, less chance of an injury. And the day after a high intensity day is usually a low intensity day. So we're going high, low. And the low intensity day is when we'll do a lot of, we'll take the heat out of the, out of the session and work more for in general endurance even a session like five or six by 200 meters if you are a young lady you're going to try and run them all in 26 seconds if you are at that level you know if you are at that level where you're looking at going to the olympics oh for two minute recovery and usually a jog a jog two minute recovery like 26 seconds is not intense but if you do once you get to rep four it can get extremely nasty and there's a fair bit of pain involved in it as hydrogen system breaks down a little bit a lot but you do develop a tolerance for it and it does manifest in faster times but you and, and in early early in your program that might be considered to be a high intensity session 
because it's going to destroy you. And we did do that on a Wednesday. It was always five or six 200s when, when we could program it in like that. But these days with, with athletes that are more tolerant, tend to sort of make that a, a low intensity backup day because there's a greater need for the athletes I'm currently working with to work on their speed. You know, Beck has run 51.20 fully automatic timing on her anchor leg in Doha for a relay split, right? So 51.2 is quite respectable, but her best 200 meter time is only like 24.3. That's pretty slow. For a world-class athlete like marie holland used to run around in the mid 23s most of the time high 23s but 10 days before the olympics before the first round in when we started her taper she ran 22.83 on the edge of a bloody hurricane up in japan it was wind legal believe it or not but it was raining it was not warm and with 22 through 22 8 sorry you can do something serious you can run 50 points I don't believe you can run. I mean, I don't know how Beck ran 51-2 and had, finished out in lane three and had to pass France twice with the intermediate PB of 24-4, I think it is. You know, but maybe the 200-metre time is not indicative of her true potential. And, well, and the other you know, thing the, I would say about that too, Mike, to jump in is you've also become very you, – you're, you're a lot – that you're a bigger master at this system than you were before. One of the things that I've always kind of run across in my mind, I was very blessed. I've talked about this a lot. I, I coached a number of young ladies who were very talented for high school in Missouri. And we won a bunch of stuff and broke a bunch of state record or school records and we're all state. Then it took me a long time to really actually figure out the things that I wanted to do or I inherently knew we needed to get done. And now I am, and I imagine you are way better at this. I'm going to address the things that my athlete specifically needs. And so even though they may lack this one particular aspect, we're still going to work on it. We're still going to make it as good as we can because we've got these modules that we slide in and slide out and recovery that we slide in, slide out. And then we go back to it with so much frequency that they never get away from it, even though that might not be Beck's strength. She's still seeing it so much that she's able to carry whatever her potential is maybe farther out more than other people. Or like you said, she's ready to run at her potential with much more frequency than others because you have this modulated system. So even though she doesn't have this crazy fast, I mean, 22, eight, that's smoking fast, especially when you think about it being the eighties and with no drugs and even this clean and, and all this kind of stuff is smoking fast. But now that shows the strength of your system and the wisdom of your system that you can now do, you can replicate these things with a person who goes on vacation for a month or two or a guy who I thought Ian, I thought he was like a boxer too. Is that true? Is he like a boxer? I'd heard you mention that or. He does a lot of boxing, but it's yeah. more, it's kind of a mixture of, of uppercuts and hooks and jabs and he goes for like, oh, God, I just get tired of even thinking about it. <laughs> you, know, the, you know, 20, 30-second bursts or 45-second bursts, you know, with 10-second or 20-second recoveries. You know, he's, he's a fitness freak. He is far more dedicated than Darren Clark or any of the, any of the great athletes that I've worked with. I've worked with a few, 
I haven't always coached them. I've, I've worked with people from different sports as well, you know. I worked with Chris Lewis, who uh, was a Wimbledon finalist in 83, lost 2-2-2 two, two, and two to John McEnroe, but a very lovely, wonderful athlete from New Zealand. And he was looking for ideas because Tony Roach had asked him to take over Ivan Lendl's trainer. No. Oh, okay. So... Um, so he came and worked with us, uh, with Darren and Marie, for a few of, a few months before he had to head off to Europe. Poor bugger. <laughs> and, and, you know, you work with different people, and it's just always lovely. You know, I had uh, one of the Socceroos head, the head coach, a former former head coach, come around and observe what was going on, and yeah, that was kind of a, just a privilege. They just they had just beaten Argentina, something like four one. It was the first game that Argentina had lost since they won their won the World Cup some years back. So yeah, you do get to meet other people, and you get cross pollination of ideas, which is really important. And that's why I also run, as you referred to earlier, to the Fast Track Four Hundred page on on Facebook. That's why I one of the reasons that I, I created that page was to invite people in my headspace and see what we're doing, you know, warts and all. And I let the athletes know, if you can't deal with me being critical of you in a technical sense, probably shouldn't be working together. They're all good about that. You know, it's up there. It's, it's, it's raw, but it's, it's real. I invite people like yourself to contribute. Just about every great coach that I've worked with, who I still have respect for, has come on and joined in. There's been some great athletes on there as well. And not all sprint guys. Mike Powell, the world long jump record holder, and his coach, Randy Huntington, are on there. And they have a phenomenal reservoir of knowledge and experience. And Randy, you know, has produced China's fastest 100-metre man, Su Biang, something like that. I'm sorry, guys. I he's just sub, Yeah, he's a sub-10 100-metre sprinter. He's, he's and... 991. He's the yeah. Asian record holder. Yeah. And, and Randy was taken in there as the jump, horizontal jumps coach, but his systems obviously apply to 100-metre guys as well. So, yeah, there's lots of people on that site, and anybody is welcome. I moderate it, and I administer it. I check everybody out. I don't let anybody through who I think could could maybe is just, you know, you see these people come on. I've got, and you, you check them out, and there's, they're a member of 250 different groups. <laughs> you know, you're kidding me, aren't you? Go, go away. But anyone who's got it, some background in track and field would really help. But or in coaching, administration, or in some kind of medical or paramedical background. That's, you the want bike. a cr cross-pollination of ideas and, and experiences and, and it's a friendly site. There's no obscenities. There's none of that sort of stuff. And we, we try to put a, a bit of news in there. Dan Paff, are you following the Collingwood story? Yes, I am, Dan. But I cannot talk to you right now because I'm talking to someone who's well, far his more ear, His ears must be ringing, <laughs> Coach. <laughs> Absolutely. That's hilarious. So yeah. funny. Yeah. So a couple questions with that. Because I, I wanted to mention this to you when you were talking about three more questions for you. So this will be the third to last. Since you spent so much time as a journalist and now running the Fast Track 400 page on this and being a guy who's pretty savvy with social media, 
for being what we would quote unquote call you an elderly statesman or whatever. But I mean that as an endearing term as much as I can possibly express it. But you busted. <laughs> hey, we got the same hairline though. So, you know. Yeah, dude. <laughs> yeah. So, but with that being said, like you've had an opportunity to, to interact with great athletes from around the world, great coaches from around the world. And then the same thing through the fast track page on Facebook, so many different people from so many different realms. In your mind, what have you found to be a commonality amongst people who are legit and commonalities between people who are shysters, you know, or BS artists, if a, that term applies? Um, the shysters, ironically, are the the really severe self-promoters. And, and, and ironically, here we are. <laughs> right. <laughs> Send our topic. Here we are. You asked. You shouldn't have asked. Um, no, I mean, they're out there to glorify themselves and they're not looking to help anybody else other than themselves. So they're not, they're not going to impart any knowledge they are going to suck the oxygen out of out of the relationship and see what they can earn from it and uh and they haven't earned it but what they can steal from it the other the other thing that's interesting is that a lot of time if you engage somebody in a conversation for long enough who really doesn't have a clue they will talk themselves full 360 or full 180 let's say around they will start out making a declaration and by the time you get somewhere near halfway through the conversation they will have completely rebutted their own statement you just think well that doesn't make any sense to me and i've uh, and i i had somebody come up to me um not that long ago a year ago and say oh yes well my mother mentored you i've gone oh no she didn't um <laughs> It, you just, it's it's so kind of, yeah, all right, okay. Don't worry about it. I don't know how to explain that really any, any more than I have, Ryan, to be honest. I don't want to upset people. Oh, there, there's, just, there's just some people that you, you know are only in it for themselves and totally selfish, and they don't have anything really to contribute other than their own self-awareness and they're well they don't have much self-awareness otherwise they'd stop behaving the way they do and just they're on an ego trip and they don't really have all that much to offer so i i knock them out i block them because they're they're a vexation to my spirit i don't need it i'd like i like healthy people that are in the game for the right reasons and who are not ruthless in terms of the, if it meant doping to get a result they wouldn't they'd hardly hesitate I don't want that kind of person in my life. I mean, the other thing apart from the 400 Fast Track program is we are now about to launch an Instagram uh, page as well, the 400 Fast Track Instagram page. I've had nothing whatsoever to do with it up to now because I don't understand any of it. Um, but uh, everybody else in the squad seems to think it's a beautiful idea. And... <laughs> Okay, so we're about to enter phase two social media. I'm not I'm still not quite sure why we need to go there, but but anyway, hopefully it'll be an adventure. They're, as long as the squad's happy and if it keeps them together, 
and it doesn't cause any harm. Right. And they don't spend the rest of their life, their waking hours locked onto bloody Instagram. Yeah, I don't really even want to see it, but yeah, all right. So then good coaches are, I would assume would be the opposite, but what are some characteristics that you could describe good coaches who get it, that you've run across in your time as a journalist and as a coach that they seem to have, like, let's just narrow down to two or three common characteristics. They have a willingness to share without an expectation of any return. They do it because they're decent people and they understand that, you know, a rising tide lifts all boats and better knowledge supersedes bullshit. And you might save an athlete, save an athlete's career, if not their life, from sharing sensible ideas about training and not driving someone into unhealthy lifestyle and training habits and allowing them the thrill of being able to occasionally run a PB. It's, it's nice, you know, and, and they can look back on that and they, they make friends that will last a lifetime through any sport. And I, I like sprinting and sprint endurance sprinting is common to nearly all, well, certainly all ball sports and to many other sports. There's a commonality, common thread, common requirement. Speed is a, an asset to anything that you do, just about. Might not be an asset to lawn bowls. I'm not sure about that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, so I gravitate to people that don't take themselves too seriously, who are not pretentious, and who are willing to accept me as like a chubby little white guy in what seems to be an increasingly a world of brilliantly configured black sprinters. And I admire them enormously. I've always been colorblind to that effect and happily remain so. Yeah, you know, I, I weirdly enough, I always found John Smith to be a very simpatico guy. He actually rang me up one day and said, I want you to write my book. But it, it just didn't seem possible. I mean, unless I flew to LA, I couldn't see right. myself doing it. And I couldn't, I couldn't find the time to devote to that project. It would have been interesting. I would have loved to have done it. I would have loved to have read but it. He was too busy. He was too busy over there. And I was too busy in Sydney. I'm married with kids and a <laughs> career, not just a job. You don't walk out on a career. And it just wasn't meant to happen but he always shared ideas with me and as did Charlie Francis as did Kelvin Giles as did Dan Path I would like to think that maybe I passed a few ideas along to Pierre-Jean Vazel <laughs> who I think these days is regarded as a genius and Agreed. he probably is he <clears throat> probably is he's he's phenomenal and so passionate about the sport and all the people I've worked with are passionate about the sport. They love the sport. They love to see any athlete do well, not purely their own athlete. And I could never have been a journalist writing about every, every athlete that I see if I wasn't like-minded. I just love to see the beauty of a human movement in a great performance. I love to watch Bubka jump. Love to watch Mike Powell and Carl Lewis jump. Yeah, I love to watch the Ulf Timmerman in the uh, shot put or <laughs> Werner, the, the, the Swiss mountains, Swiss Alp. Those guys. So we're going, going back a ways. Love to watch. Um, I like Steve Ovet. I like the way he ran. But more so than, than uh, 
than Seb Coe, and possibly not quite as much as I enjoyed watching Steve Cram, although Ovet seemed to be more robust. Mm-hmm. And I liked that, being from a very much a football culture right. back in Sydney, Australia. So you see what you want to see in different people. And as your eye becomes a little bit more sophisticated and a bit more trained, you can pick up the nuances and you understand what you're actually witnessing and you can appreciate a little bit more without being an academic about it. I still want to be keep it real. I don't want to try and baffle anyone with bullshit because I, I don't think I'd be very good at it, to be honest. Yeah, but plenty of other people have tried that on me and I've called their called their, their bluff and, and just let them get on with it and time will tell whether they, they knew what they were talking about. And having been a journalist for 43 years, an international journalist for most of that time, you develop a pretty good bullshit detector. I have not been uh, betrayed by that detector up to this day. Why am I talking to you? <laughs> I'm no, just you're listening. a great man. I can't, I can't. A huge, <laughs> you have made a huge contribution. You possibly don't even understand it yourself. But through that Sprinter's Compendium, you've unified the coaching community and brought the best out of many good coaches who've been willing to contribute their thoughts uh, to your tome. Yeah. <laughs> well, I appreciate that, Mike. And it means a lot. And your contributions and your support have continued to be very valuable in that. And, you know, it, in many ways, I look at it as being a nuclear bomb versus a cruise missile in terms of its effectiveness. So take that for what you want. I will eventually, you know, we're going to go back and we'll clean it up a little bit for some of the readers and things that people that don't know this that are listening in that I have a learning disability in writing. So here I am talking to a guy whose career is in writing, you know, and I'm trying to emulate his passion and his support of our sport and all that kind of stuff. And it was one of those things where for me, it's like, I'm going to get this done because this is something that I've been told I couldn't do for you know, most of my life. And there is still grammar errors in the book and all that kind of stuff. But there is nothing that I could do more than to go out there and find good coaches like you who get it, who want to help, who want to raise, you know, all the ships with the rising tide. And you've been so beneficial in that and so gracious and conversations like this continue to develop and build that relationship and add value to all the people who are eventually going to hear this when it's posted. So my last question for you, cause I was gonna, this is kind of fits both. So I think it's a good way to sum all these wonderful things we've discussed today, Mike, in a really nice package. Mike Hurst, Coach Hurst, what is in your mind a perfect day as a coach? A perfect day as a coach is a day when I've been able to resolve at least temporarily the problem that every athlete in my squad has on that given day so that's that's as a coach and obviously the perfect day for me would be seeing an athlete fulfill their potential what i believe was their potential even if they didn't see it getting darren and marie to an olympic final that was actually on successive days That was pretty perfect. It was pretty cool. Seeing 
criticisms of my program from people who were committed to over distance training. You cannot, your athletes will not be able to see out the 400 metres because you never run much further than 300 metres. How are they going to run out that last 100? Uh, unless they run fives and sixes and kilos and cross country in the, in the off season and whatever. And to see Darren run 11.8 electric for the last 100 of his 44.3 and to see Marie run mid-13s or something like that, for the last hundred of her, 50.2. And to see Darren beat two Kenyans to run 44.60 in his fourth 400-metre race in 28 hours to win the Commonwealth Games gold medal in Auckland 1990 and break a 20-year record held by a great Kenyan 400-metre uh, guy it was really satisfying <laughs> for me because... I, I would hope that the myth that you can't finish a race if you don't do over distance reps would have would have been dead and buried at that moment. But it still persists. Old habits die hard, and some people just have blockages about that that in their system. My, I still believe speed reserve is the best kind of endurance for a sprinter. You know, that's what I was referring to earlier with Beck. How do you run fifty one two if you can't break? 24 seconds for 200 somehow she's done it but she's done it without having broken without having run any further than 300 meters in training yeah we break things up broken 450s and things like that and we do continuous intervals at in the rhythm of the race and so i think there's a lot to be investigated there by by people smarter than myself <laughs> uh <clears throat> But it seems like nobody could be bothered and that's okay. I'll just plod on and maybe when I'm dead and buried, someone will say, yeah, that system had some merit to it. Let's have a closer look. Yeah, there you go. That's the concurrent system. And I think the Brits have changed the name of the concurrent system, but it seems to me that most of the world now follows a version of the concurrent system. And I don't, I can't even remember what the British people want to call it. They can call it what they like. It's still a <laughs> concurrent system. Yeah. Anyway, there you go. Awesome, Coach. Well, I appreciate you so much for being here. And for all the listeners that want to continue to hear great conversations with great men and women in the sport, please sign up and, and be a part of our subscription list for the Companions of the Compendium podcast. Again, I want to thank Mike for being here and spending so much time and being so gracious to wake up super early in the morning to talk to me late in the afternoon as we bounce our signal off satellites. The miracle of technology has given me the opportunity to meet wonderful, fantastic human beings like you, Mike. And sooner than later, I'm bringing the family over and we're going to come on down under and have a few uh, opportunities to have a few man sodas and, and all that kind of wonderful stuff and surely talk way late into the night about way too many topics for way too long. But I love you, man. I hope you know I appreciate you more than I can express in words. And thank you for spending so much time with me in the audience today. Uh, it's a pleasure and a privilege, Ryan. Thanks for what you do for the sport. It's great. And um, I hope people have got something out of what I can interpret or decipher something of value out of the, the rest of the gibberish that, that I imparted to you. Uh, and, and thank you for your patience. It is absolutely my pleasure. And I know that people will get value out of this conversation. Awesome, buddy. Thanks again. Signing off.